From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told and you are among friends. Science writer and professional debunker Mick West is standing by. His new book, Escaping the Rabbit Hole, How to Debunk Conspiracy Theories Using Facts, Logic and Respect. And then in the second hour, folklorist, paranormal researcher, cryptozoologist Ronald L. Murphy Jr. joins us to talk about vampires and werewolves and mermaids and goblins and uh, much more. Big paranormal conference happening down in Pennsylvania. We'll tell you about that. All right. Uh, let me introduce the boys in the band on the Flying V. Gibson guitar technical producer, Ian Robertson. Now, Ian, uh, I think I've mentioned, is in a band called The Grease Marks, and they have a new album out. Uh, please buy the album, donate to Ian's college fund, and that's uh, greasemarks.com. Greasemarks.com. It's a great album. Uh, Ian uh, was uh, playing a few licks on a guitar earlier, and what a talented young man he is. Uh, on the Rickenbacker bass guitar and occasionally the theremin, uh, my story producer, Albert Vinzel. And finally, on the Hammond B3 live stream producer, Ryan White. Uh, now, I have to commend my uh, my next guest for coming on. Uh, he's not going to be preaching to the choir, that's for sure. Some might say he's uh, he's wandered into the lion's den. Um, many of you, may, in fact, may take great exception uh, to what he has to say. In fact, if uh, the emails are any indication. However, he is here to try and uh, deprogram us, I suppose. The Mick West is a science writer and professional debunker. While he began his career as a video games pr- programmer, his primary focus at the moment is investigating and explaining conspiracy theories. Uh, his new book is Escaping the Rabbit Hole, How to Debunk Conspiracy Theories Using Facts, Logic, and Respect. Milk, Mick uh, West, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Thank you. I'm very good. How are you doing? Glad to be here. Terrific, and we're glad to have you. You know, I've said many times, I don't consider myself to be a conspiracy theorist. I'm a skeptic. But let's start off with, because I'm sure we're going to find some common ground here. Would you agree or disagree, Mick, with this statement, that believing that nothing is a conspiracy is almost or equally as silly as believing that that everything is a conspiracy? Absolutely. And in fact, I opened the book, the introduction of the book, with uh, the words, of course, conspiracy theories are real. Because obviously there are conspiracy theories that are going on all throughout the world and at all levels of government. We know that people conspire within the government to do bad things. And we know that people in the government do not have our best interests at heart. We know what politicians are like. Uh, A large number of politicians are really just interested in themselves or in uh, their own personal goals, whatever they may be. And so it's very, very reasonable to expect that there will be conspiracies, and it's very, very reasonable to be suspicious of people in power, and I, I encourage that. Good. All right. So, um, I mean, there's and there's no question, first of all, that, that, that people who believe in conspiracies, that, that everything virtually is a conspiracy, in, in even people like myself, we make logical fallacies, uh, lots of them. But um, so many articles and books I'm seeing out there in this field now um, are all committing, not all, but many are committing this logical fallacy. They're begging the question. So, for example, and the idea is that the, the opinion they're trying to prove is, is given as if it were already a, a proven thing. So it goes something like this. 
uh, and we've all seen these headlines or, or newspaper columns or books. Why do people believe in conspiracies? Or mm-hmm. uh, my month living amongst conspiracy theorists and what makes them tick? Uh, yeah. That's begging the question, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think I don't think there is a simple answer. You know why people believe in conspiracy theories. I don't think you can really ask it of uh, an entire population of people. I think it's much more interesting to look at an individual person and ask them what their personal story is uh, as to how they came to believe in conspiracy theories and how they came to believe in the particular conspiracy theories that they happen to be you know, most interested in, because some people are more interested in one than the other. And what I found is the vast majority of people believe in conspiracy theories nowadays because they've watched some compelling videos on YouTube. This is kind of the way people get into conspiracy theories. Now, it was different 20 years ago. People were more, inter- more into you know, books and magazines. But now, if you ask why do people believe in conspiracy theories, at an individual level, people believe in conspiracy theories, not because there's anything wrong with them, not because they're, you know, they're crazy or they're stupid. And in fact, most conspiracy theorists are really just you know, the same as any other person. They're just people that I think have fallen down a, a particular rabbit hole and they kind of got stuck down there. And the way they got down there was via YouTube. Right. But as you established off the top, I mean, conspiracies are real. So, And there's a long history, for example, of mm-hmm. – we'll get into this in more detail and we can sort of separate the wheat from the chaff in terms of false flags. But there is – I think you, we, we would agree there is a long history – of false flags, whether we're talking about the Reichstag fire where Hitler, you know, seized upon what was probably the action of one, you know, a Dutch communist. Right. Uh, and then used that to, to, to gain emergency powers and, and, and said there's a plot, a communist plot. That, that's a false flag. Uh, Essentially, that's yeah. uh, uh, the, the, I know what you're saying, but yeah. the, the, there are real things that are you know, right. real. So many people, you know, I think, that happen. right. So I think many people believe in conspiracies because of pattern recognition. They see a pattern mm-hmm. throughout history and say, "Well, why should we believe that it's any different now than it was then?" What do you think of that? Well, I think uh, what you've really got to do is look at, uh, you know, compare the things that you're actually talking about. A lot of people talk about Operation Northwoods, mm. and yes. they compare that to 9/11. Now, Operation Northwoods was uh, basically with the Chiefs of Staff uh, in 1962, I believe, right. uh, asked for excuses they could use to invade Cuba. They said, if we wanted to invade Cuba, how could we do it? And there were various suggestions given. They, they said uh, we could like fly planes over and hope that they shoot at us, and if they shoot at us, then we'll invade them. Or assassinate or John Glenn was actually one of them. Do you remember and, that? Assassinate John uh, Glenn. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that was in the Northwoods document. That might have been something that was a bit more uh, uh, esoteric. But you know, the, in the Northwoods document, there are all these proposals, uh, suggestions, ideas for things like pretending a, a plane had been hijacked or pretending a plane had been shot down or uh, pretending that um, you know, some, something had, had happened that didn't actually happen, like pretending there'd been an attack on Guantanamo Bay right. and then responding to that. And there were also some plots to uh, explode some bombs in, uh, I believe, in Miami and perhaps in Washington. None of these things ever actually happened. Uh, the, they made this list, which is a, a 10-page document. I actually have a copy of it right. on my desk here. And they didn't do these things. 
And none of these things were anything like the scale of 9-11. 9-11, we had 3,000 people, 3,000 American people killed and you know, billions of dollars of damage. And if you compare that to what actually, what actually happened with Northwoods, which were just some proposals that were on a much smaller scale, did not involve killing any American citizens and were never implemented, you're really comparing apples and oranges. And you really can't say that you know, because they did Northwoods, uh, they did 9-11. No, the idea though that they would propose such a thing, first of all, and and, I, mm-hmm. and, and thankfully I, was, I believe it was Robert McNamara who said, no, we're not doing any of this, this is absurd. But the idea that you would actually have, you know, uh, members of the uh, the Joint Chiefs actually proposing something like that, I agree, but, but if you're comparing the scale, but the intent... But you've got to think, the other things that the Joint Chiefs have proposed, they've mm-hmm. proposed doing preemptive nuclear strikes on Moscow killing millions of people. Right. These are things that they, they draw plans, like contingency, contingency plans, like if we wanted to do something, like if there was going to be a nuclear war, then what should we do? Well, we should take out Moscow, you know, kill 20 million people. Right. That's, you know, it's a, something that was suggested, which is horrific, and they never did, largely because it was a, you know, a terrible idea. And you can look at the Northwood things, Northwood documents, those proposals as a similar type of thing. They were asked to you know, brainstorm a bunch of ideas. How can we deal with this Cuba problem? Yeah, this was just after the Bay of Pigs. They just had this terribly embarrassing thing where the CIA uh, you know, got to a bunch of Cuban revolutionaries to try to go back in, and it totally right. failed them in the right. faces. So they're trying to, trying to figure out what to do next. They say, give me some ideas. Someone goes away. They write this 10-page document. They have a bunch of crazy ideas to do with like, you know, pretending planes were blown up. They bring it back. Uh, McMurrow or JFK or whoever says this is ridiculous. And then a year later, we have the Cuban Missile Crisis, well, it was like six months later, and it was all a moot point anyway. Uh, but, yeah, you've really got to say, like, you know, sure, the U.S. military and the U.S. government, they consider terrible things. But what have they actually done in the past that's on the scale of 9-11? No, that's or true. Or if you want to go the other way, like, what have they done that's on the scale of, say, Sandy Hook? People think that Sandy Hook was faked. Has the U.S. government ever done anything that's vaguely like Sandy Hook before? Well, there's a, I think a difference between a false flag and then, but also being politically uh, opportunistic and seizing yeah. upon an event like that, uh, yeah. for example, to push a, a gun control agenda or something, and that certainly goes on. Uh, Absolutely, yeah, and I, I would agree that goes on, and that's uh, you, you know we we divide conspiracy theories into like let it happen conspiracy theories and made it happen conspiracy theories with like with nine eleven, but there's a, a stage that you're referring to which is the the glad it happened conspiracy conspiracy theory. Right. Yeah, you know, something comes up, and they they immediately exploit it, and because they're exploiting it, that makes people suspicious that they might have planned it. Like if you think, for example, Make Pearl Harbor. Mick, apologies for the interruption. Uh, I'm going to jump in here. We're going to take a time out. There's okay. that music coming up. We'll pick it up on the other side. We're going to find some common ground, Mick and I, and we're also going to disagree on some things, and that's wonderful. We'll uh, come back and uh, continue to speak with the author of Escaping the Rabbit Hole, Debunking Conspiracies Using Facts, Logic, and Respect. Back with more. Stay with us. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, Mick West is here, the author of Escaping the Rabbit Hole, 
how to debunk conspiracy theories using facts, logic, and respect. And um, we're agreeing on some things and disagreeing on some things, and we'll continue to do that, no doubt. So, Mick, I want to talk about chemtrails now. Because okay. this is a an area that uh, obviously... Uh, has a lot of people concerned and panicked. We're hearing things like, you know, aluminum particulates in the air, perhaps to mm-hmm. forestall uh, climate change. Uh, some people go so far as to suggest that this is part of a depopulation agenda. But, I mean, is it unreasonable uh, when we have, for, for example, scientists, I think recently at Harvard, talking about the need for geoengineering, Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think the express purpose for that would be to forestall global warming. Uh, we have a, a white paper that came out from the Defense Department a number of years ago called Owning the Weather by, by 2025. And, I mean, we do have that technology. You know, we can seed clouds. We did that in, in Vietnam. Uh, I mean, is it so far a stretch to suggest that this might be going on? For whatever reason, I don't know. I think... Uh I don't think it's a stretch to think that people might want to do it because uh, you know, managing the climate, if we could actually manage the climate and we could mitigate the effects of global warming, that would be a good thing to do. You know, If we could actually stop the negative effects of global warming whilst we try to actually fix it in the background, that would be a good thing to do. Uh, I think where we get to a stretch is where people claim there's evidence is actually going on. Now, it could be that they're doing it, but they're not leaving any evidence. But the things that people point to as evidence, when you look at them closely, they don't actually stand up. Like, for example, people say that uh, contrails should normally dissipate very rapidly behind a plane. And that's simply not true. If you look at any, any book on weather, any book on clouds going back the last 70 years, back to World War II, you'll see they'll all describe contrails and they'll all say that contrails sometimes can last for a long time and sometimes they dissipate very rapidly. So a lot of the, uh, the things that people base their belief on in this theory don't actually stand up to scrutiny. Uh, there's the other one you mentioned is uh, aluminum. I think a lot of people don't realize that the, the ground that they stand on is just not covered with aluminum, but it pretty much is aluminum. In California, where I am, the, the topsoil, the top th- three inches of the soil, contain about 10% aluminum uh, in the form of aluminosilicates, which is a rock. So you've got all these people who get suspicious about aluminum being sprayed. They go out and they test some water in their pond or they're, they're testing the soil or whatever, and they find aluminum. And, you know, unfortunately, they don't really understand the chemistry behind the tests and what they're finding is these aluminosilicates in the rock, which are pretty much everywhere. You know, aluminum is completely ubiquitous. So there's a lot of misunderstanding. And I think it's very reasonable to be concerned about things like potential geoengineering, but there really isn't any evidence that it's going on right now. What about uh, some some people are claiming that, uh, that there is um, higher levels of things like barium and strontium uh, in the air and in the soil, and they, they are suggesting that that is related to chemtrail spraying? Yes, but again, if you, if you look at those tests, it's very interesting. What they do is they do a test, and they just test for those three things. They test for aluminum, barium, and strontium, because they, they somehow got this idea that these are the three things that are some kind of signature of, of geoengineering, even though strontium has never been mentioned in any geoengineering proposal ever, and barium hardly at all, aluminum a little bit more, but even that not so much. But that aside, they just test for these three things, and they find lots of aluminum, 
they find uh, a bit of barium and a little bit less of strontium. And if you take those results and you compare them to the percentage of elements, those elements in the Earth's crust, all they're finding is basically the same proportions as you would find in dirt. So what they are doing is they're testing water that's got a bit of dirt in, and because dirt has these percentage of elements, they come up with, you know, whatever, 20 parts per million of aluminum and like 100 parts per billion of, of, of strontium and uh, the other part of, uh, of uh, barium. And they're not finding anything other than dirt. But it's very difficult to explain these to people. Like I've tried to talk to people like uh, uh, Dane Wigington, who's the, the, the guy who runs geoengineeringwatch.org. Yes. I tried to explain this to him. And he basically, he, he shut me down when I tried to explain what the tests actually do and what the chemists, chemical things are. And this is one of the fundamental problems of what I do, is that it's very difficult to communicate with people when they don't want to listen to what you're trying to say. Right. And so right. I spent a lot of my trying, trying to get past that, trying to uh, explain to people that I'm just, I'm just a regular guy. Uh, and I, I, I'm not a government shill and I'm not doing it for money. I'm just telling people what I think is correct. Uh, and I want to listen to what they think is correct as well yeah. and try to find some common ground that we can talk about. But uh, it didn't work out with Dane, but Dane Wigginson, but I, I, I learned a lot from that conversation. And I've been trying to communicate better, be a better communicator with other people uh, and you know, explain things that I think that they've got wrong, but... Perhaps well, they haven't. We'll find out. One of the, the, the mottos of this show is following the truth wherever it leads. And to me, that means if in the end it means that chemtrails aren't real, then that's what we have to deal with. But just sort of anecdotally here, and I know this mm-hmm. isn't scientific by any means, but when I, I remember as a kid looking up into the sky, and I remember big those big, you know, tall, puffy, cumulus clouds. Right. We had days like that, and then we had these days with just beautiful azure skies stretching from horizon to horizon. And now, a lot of it, I don't see those type of cloud formations as much as I used to. What I see is just this kind of this hazy, dull mm-hmm. cloud cover. I'm not sure what you, there's a name for that type of cloud, and I can't remember it. Cirrus Yes, that's it. Thank you. Thank you. I see a lot more of that. And I have witnessed this, where I've seen a plane fly over, no rain in the forecast. It's supposed to be a beautiful sunny day. And all of a sudden, these... These contrails, if you will, they, they, they seem like they're spreading out, spreading out, spreading out. More planes go by. They spread out, spread out. And pretty soon, they obliterate the sky. No yeah. more sun, no more Asia sky. Now I just have this this uh, this hazy cloud cover. What yeah. is going on well, there's there? A, there's a couple of things going on there. One is that contrails do spread out to cover the sky. And this is something that has been observed since World War II and actually since before. And the first contrails spreading out were observed in the uh, the 1920s. This is something they do. Uh, there's a lot more air traffic now than there was in the 1980s. There's also a lot more routes, uh, a lot more you know, between this city and the city, smaller cities. You get small commuter jets between, going between these cities. Uh, and th- it is actually a problem. Uh, contrails are a kind of visual pollution. And I think it's perfectly reasonable to be you know, a bit concerned and even upset about this. And, you know, it could be something that... You know, the problem is people... Just, People don't really care about it. You know, most people, they, they see the days recently sunny and the fact that it's a bit hazy, it doesn't really bother them that much. But I, I like the pure blue skies myself. And if we could somehow get rid of contrails, uh, that would, that would, you know, improve that a lot. 
But another thing you mentioned was that you see contrails before the, the sky gets overcast. Uh, and what's happening there, quite possibly, is that there's a weather front moving in. Now, uh, one type of weather front, a uh, warm front, I believe, I always get them mixed up, uh, comes in kind of like at the top first. So if there weren't any contrails, what would happen is you would first see some cirrus clouds forming very high up, these very wispy clouds, very, very high up. And then you see some clouds uh, lower down forming. And then you would see the, the, the rain clouds forming like a few hours or maybe even a day after that. So you get this natural progression of things. Now, the contrails just form a bit above where the cirrus clouds form. So when this front moves in, you will see the, you'll see the contrails start forming first. Then you see the cirrus clouds forming. Then you see the, the, the alto stratus. And then you see the, the nimbus clouds, the rain clouds, and it starts to rain. So people can actually use contrails to predict the weather in the same way they would use Serious players to predict the weather, and this is something that you know, sailors do. They look up and they see they see contrails in a certain way. They know that there's a, a front moving, and it might start to rain. So there's actual explanations for the things that you're seeing. Is it possible that though there there is some additive in the jet fuel that is legitimately making people sick? Because there seems to be a lot more allergies uh, than I remember as a, a as a child. Uh, a lot of upper respiratory ailment, and then people are are saying that when there's a heavy sort of you know uh, contrail uh, concentration in their area, mm-hmm. they feel more upper respiratory ailments. Yeah, well, uh, I just saw one of the, the leading contrail scientists in the world, Patrick Minnis uh, from NASA. He just said something about how when it's contrail conditions, when the weather's a, a, a right for contrails to form. His daughter, I believe, uh, gets more, I can't remember what it was, it was asthma or some kind of respiratory ailment. But that's because respiratory ailments depend on the weather. So if the weather is kind of wet and cloudy or low pressure, uh, then people's, people's breathing is different. And if it's, if it's hot and sunny, then people's breathing might be better. You know, this is why people move to different to climates. People move to the desert because the air is better there. And the same thing, like if the weather is, is better, you know, people's health is going to be better. But you, know, you say you know, some, some things have changed. Some uh, things are more than, you know, like uh, the, the thing about respiratory illnesses, it moves from the fourth leading cause of, cause of death to the third leading cause of death. Now, there's uh, some misinformation going around about that, saying that you actually move from the eighth to the uh, to the third, but it didn't move from the fourth to the third, and it only moved from the fourth to the third because it just overtook stroke. It was just below stroke uh, as a cause of death, and other causes of death are moving down because we're getting better treatments for them: the heart disease and cancer, which are the top two. Uh, and that's there's just been this very minor change, but people promote this very minor change as if it was a significant change, and it's. You know, that's, you know, like I was saying, it's a challenge to actually get the information across to people. I, I will have a chart showing that it, it didn't actually go up, it didn't skyrocket. In fact, it's hardly changed at all. In fact, it actually went down, I think, between uh, uh, 1995 and 2005. But it didn't go uh, down as fast as, as strokes. It didn't go uh, down as yes, fast correct. as strokes. Yes, yeah, strokes went, you know, they both kind of went up and down a little bit because it's very hard to measure these things. Uh, with any degree of accuracy, there's a bit of noise. You can see very clearly that heart disease goes down, uh, but the, these these are very quite small uh, causes of death, uh, and, and it just overtook stroke, so it didn't really go up. And if you hear people saying there's been this massive, you know, 
emergency rooms are full of people with respiratory diseases. It's just simply not true. I would encourage people to look at the actual figures. One thing that has spiked, and that is uh, um, Alzheimer's. And there does appear to be a link between Alzheimer's and um, aluminum uh, contamination. Yeah. So what's the connection there? Yeah, I, I'm not entirely sure what that is. I think uh, one of the uh, suggestions there is that the medication that's alumin- uh, that uh, Alzheimer's patients use uh, has aluminum in it, and it accumulates in the brain. Uh, the thing is, though, the, there's a correlation between Alzheimer's and aluminum. However, if we were being sprayed, everybody would be getting the exact same amount of aluminum. It's not like it's falling on this one guy here and he gets Alzheimer's. You know, if we were spraying aluminum in the air, uh, it would it would be everywhere and everyone would have exactly the same thing and we could do autopsies on every single person and we would find uh, you know, these, these build-ups of aluminum in the brain. But we're only finding them in the people with Alzheimer's, which suggests that it's not the the aluminum in the atmosphere that's causing it. It's something else which is causing aluminum to accumulate on the brain, which is associated with Alzheimer's. It doesn't even mean that that aluminum is causing the Alzheimer's. It could be something to do with the, the brain degeneration itself, like letting it be, the aluminum accumulate, or it could be to do with the medication that they're taking containing aluminum or containing things which break down the blood-brain barrier and allow aluminum to accumulate. Um, but yeah, there isn't really... The thing about aluminum is aluminum is actually very, very safe. Uh, we we have soda cans that are made of aluminum that we like stick in our mouths every day. Uh, we, we wrap our food in aluminum foil. The ground, as I said, is 10% aluminum. The dust in the air, we're breathing in aluminum all the time. Uh, the average person gets five milligrams of aluminum just from uh, water and the food that they're eating. It's pretty much everywhere. And... If you were spraying a little aluminum out of a plane, it really actually wouldn't make any real difference to the total amount of aluminum that's in the atmosphere because there's so much there already uh, that, uh, you know, it, it would make a difference in the higher levels where you're blocking out the sunlight. But in the lower levels, you know, you've got lots of dust, so it's not really going to make any difference. On your, uh, on your website, are you, uh, are you gaining any converts? I mean, are you winning any of these, with these battles and convincing people? Are they saying, oh, it, like talking them in off the ledge, I guess, would be the, would be the, uh, yeah, the analogy? Definitely. And, but what I found though is it's a very, uh, it's a long process. It's not something where you can have a, a discussion with someone and convince them. Like say someone was a chemtrail believer and I started telling them all this stuff. You know, they could, they could tell me their arguments and I can explain to them one at a time what was wrong with their arguments. It's very unlikely and probably pretty much impossible that they would change their mind at that time. So what I try to do is I try to focus uh, on more details on individual things, like, for example, the, the thing with aluminum uh, in the ground and the aluminum tests. Try not to jump around from one thing to another, but just focus on one thing and try to make sure that I understand what their point of view is, and they understand what my point of view is. Because you really have to get that um, that mutual understanding. You have, right. to get, you have to establish some kind of common ground between you and the other person. That's so, that's so true. We I have just, to take we have to take a quick break, okay. uh, Mick. But that's true. So many people, not only in this arena, but just in politics in general, we're just all talking past each other. We have to sit and listen, and respect obviously is the watchword. We'll come back and continue to delve into. Debunking conspiracy theories. Mick West joins us. Escaping the rabbit hole. You're on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Don't be afraid. 
The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. I know I'll get emails saying you've given in to the dark side. You have a debunker on. He's not exactly a debunker. You know, that's kind of a trigger word, right? Debunker, because there are debunkers and there are skeptics. And I consider myself to be a skeptic. Why do you use the word debunker rather than skeptic? I use the word debunker because everyone understands what it means if something has been debunked. Like if you say, you know, I, I heard that, you know, this guy got shot and someone else says, oh, that's been debunked. And people understand what that means. It means that someone's looked into it and they've explained that it's false. You know, they've figured out that it's false and, you know, they'll, they'll explain to you why it is. And what I do is I investigate things. I see if they are, you know, if the claims are true or not. And then if they are or if they're not, then I'll explain that to people. And usually I'm looking at things like conspiracy theories, which tend to be very speculative. And so a lot of the things end up being false. So if I find something that is false, I'll explain it to people. But I'm not setting out to prove the conspiracy theory false. What I try to do is look at the actual individual claims of evidence uh, people make. Like uh, with, say, 9-11, one of the claims of evidence is that they found these little iron microspheres uh, in the dust, and then they claim that meant that it must have been uh, thermite being used in the the demolition of 9-11. Right. And so I, I will examine a claim like that, and I'll try to understand, you know, why they're making that claim, what what they base that on. And then I'll see, does that actually hold up to scrutiny? Are there other ways that the iron microspheres or whatever could have got in the dust? And so, you know, a skeptic, I, you know, I, 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 a lot of my friends are skeptics. Uh, I'm a member of, you know, the Skeptic Society. But uh, skeptic is more of a state of being than it is an active word. It's not a verb. You don't skeptic things. I don't go and skeptic uh, a claim. When I go and debunk something, though, that's an actual active thing. It's it's something I'm doing. I'm looking into it. I'm investigating it. And I'm explaining it if it's wrong. So I I just prefer the word. And like I say, I think people understand what it means. No matter what word you use, people are going to uh, have negative associations with it. It's like the word conspiracy theory. Right. Uh, We use the word conspiracy theory to describe things like what we're talking about because people understand what it means. It means you know, people attributing a secret conspiracy by powerful people to significant events, like major events in the world. And uh, usually that comes along with a tendency to believe in other conspiracy theories. But you know, people say that the term conspiracy theory is a negative term and that I'm using it deliberately to denigrate people. But I'm using it because it's the best term that we have available. It, right. It's, it's short that describes what's yeah. going on here. Before the term conspiracy theory came into significant use in the uh, end of the 1950s, they called people uh, paranoids. And I think people would prefer not to be called paranoids, and conspiracy theorists is a, is a better idea. This has been going on for uh, this idea that the term conspiracy theory was actually coined and pushed by the CIA after the release of the Warren report because so many people simply didn't believe that Oswald acted yeah. alone and so that the it was decided well we have to discredit certain people so we're going to call them conspiracy theorists right. uh, go now online and you'll see the memorandum and so forth is yeah. that is that true or not yeah that's no it's not true there's a, a memorandum by the CIA called concerning criticism of the Warren report it came out in 1967 uh, which is four years after JFK was assassinated in 63. 
And uh, in that memorandum, they do not encourage people to use the term conspiracy theory uh, or conspiracy theorists. They use it themselves in a couple of times, but it's just in describing what's, uh, what they're talking about. So they say, we are concerned about conspiracy theories coming up and we need to help, uh, we need to you know, explain things to the conspiracy theorists. They don't suggest using the term conspiracy theorist to make people look bad. And if you actually look at the usage of the term conspiracy theorist, this is something I did for the book. I went through a newspaper archive and I looked in every year, starting in 1950, all the way up to the, the last day it had, uh, and saw how many times the word uh, conspiracy theory or conspiracy theorist was used. And it basically was starting to ramp up at the end of the 1950s. It was used at that time to discuss uh, the conspiracy theories of the radical right which would be people like the Klu Klux Klan and the John Birch Society, people right. who were very uh, anti-African-Americans and very anti-communist and very anti-Catholic, uh, people like that. And there was a lot of conspiracy theories going on then at the end of the 1950s. And it continued at a fairly low level. And then it kind of like got a little bump in 1963 when uh, JFK was assassinated. And then it kind of went back down again and it leveled up uh, after that. And in 1967, when the report was issued, nothing happened. The usage didn't really change. It uh, stayed fairly steady. And in 1968, there was the assassinations of uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert uh, Kennedy. Uh, bumped a little bit then. But after that, it just basically returned back to pretty much the level it was before that. And it didn't really start going up until the, uh, the 1990s. Uh, it really got to uh, uh, the very first figure in my book is uh, is showing this it got a big peak in 1997 uh, and the reason it got that was there was a film released called Conspiracy Theory right. with Mel Gibson. Gibson Yes, and uh, also the Men in Black films were released at the time and there was uh, people talking about that as well but it certainly uh, is being, it has been weaponized now, I mean, for better or worse. I mean, it is being used in many cases. Uh, I, I, I would disagree with that. I would disagree with that. Uh, I think, you know, I understand why you're saying that, because uh, people have this negative association with conspiracy theorists. Uh, and if someone says you're a conspiracy theorist, that is that tinfoil hat type thing. So people think that people are using it in a negative way. But I think, unfortunately, people are just using it as a, basically a simple descriptor and it doesn't matter what term you would use uh, there was there's a book by Lance de Havron Smith I think his name is well, sorry uh, for the interruption Mick we're going to pick it up on the other side this was a short segment we'll come back and we'll drill down on that a little bit more all right Mick West stays with us just a reminder coming up after the top of the hour we'll uh, talk with the cryptozoologist Ronald L Murphy Jr. will be with us the Conspiracy Show returns right after this. Beaming across North America, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Okay, back to uh, our conversation with Mick West. And uh, he is the author of Escaping the Rabbit Hole, uh, How to Debunk Conspiracy Theories Using Fact, Logic, uh, and um, respect. Now, we were talking about the term conspiracy theory, and you had another point that you were you were mentioning, uh, and then I wanted to add to the, something to that as well. So go ahead, Mick, uh, just before I interrupt yeah, there's, there's you. A, sorry, there's a, there's a writer, Lance de Havron-Smith, who write, wrote a book on conspiracy theories. I think it's called uh, American Conspiracies. And he he suggested this, this theory, the conspiracy theory, conspiracy theory, that the term conspiracy theory 
was invented by the CIA. And he says that we should, we should, instead of use the term conspiracy theory, we should use the term uh, state crimes against democracy, SCAD, yes. SCAD. Uh, and he thinks this would be a better term. Uh, but all that's going to happen if he did actually get people to start using this term is that conspiracy theorists would start being called scadders. <laughs> people would people would take the term that you know people have chosen for themselves right. and they would apply it to these people and it would seem like it's a derogatory term. I mean, yeah, even if people are just using it in a purely descriptive way, because so many conspiracy theorists are kind of like out there, uh, it naturally gets on this this negative connotation. Now, I just, I divide conspiracy theories. Everybody divides conspiracy theories into two things. The sensible conspiracy theories, which seem very reasonable and are probably true, and then all the ridiculous disinformation conspiracy theories. And there's this line of demarcation that everybody has. And everybody hates all the conspiracy theories that are on the other side of the uh, line of demarcation because those conspiracy theories make them look silly. Yes. They think they're being very sensible with their beliefs about whatever it is, if it's like 9-11 or chemtrails or uh, JFK. They think they're being very sensible and very science-based. But then they hear about other things like the flat earth conspiracy theory or, or some of the crazier false flag conspiracy theories. And they think, you know, those people are making us look bad. I don't want to be associated with them. But if we if we if we have a term for this type of thing, you can't just say everybody gets to say this is a conspiracy theory and this is nonsense or this is a scab and this is nonsense. You know, we're going to have this term for conspiracy theories, and you may as well call it conspiracy theories because it's a nice, simple, descriptive uh, term. And if you take the term "scad," you're just going to get called "scadders" in the same way that no, uh, that, 9/11 that's, truth that's, supporters are called "truthers." That's fair, but here's the problem, and where it's problematic is when it is used to stifle debate or mm-hmm. healthy, rigorous inquiry. And uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, up here in Canada, we have something called the Bank of Canada Act. Uh, this is what was created when the Prime Minister nationalized our Bank of Canada, so now it's owned in common by all citizens, and all the various levels of government could borrow from the, the central bank. I, I don't want to get too deep into the, the weeds here, but the point is, when this is now being ignored by politicians, and we are now we are now uh, borrowing from international lenders and paying interest, and and this is responsible for you know, a large portion of our debt accumulated uh, compound interest, um, where before we could borrow at low interest from the Bank of Canada. Someone who is f- taking this fight to the, uh, the various levels of, uh, you know, the federal court, the Supreme Court, to challenge the government on this, mm-hmm. um, this is a respectable lawyer. He, he went up to the prime minister and asked him about this, and the prime minister says, I'm sorry, I don't engage in conspiracy theories. So this is an example of how it is being used by people who who, who um, don't even necessarily even uh, understand the situation in, in its entirety. Right. They just they just want to stifle and and move on, and that's how it's often used by people who think, don't have a, even a modicum of intellectual curiosity. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree that's that's a problem. But the prime minister could equally have said, "I, I don't indulge in uh, baseless speculation." Uh, he just took a, picked a term which happened to be perhaps a little bit more insulting uh, when used in that context. He chose those words because he knows that that's the, the quickest way to, to end a debate right. and discredit but if somebody. If he said, like, complete nonsense or baseless speculation, that right. essentially gets the same thing. You know, if, if he said, I don't uh, indulge in uh, paranoid delusions, 
that would be even worse. So he's kind of pitching it at a level that was a bit insulting, but it isn't perhaps as bad as he could go. He could have said far worse things, right. but he picks uh, conspiracy theories. And, but, and, and uh, I find reporters use this, do the same thing often. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and again, it's like, well, okay, I might be wrong, but at least I have... I have sort of delved into this. I've examined it. Yeah. Maybe my fact is wrong over here. Maybe this doesn't add up. But at least, you know, people are out there. They're pulling on threads. Uh, they're, yeah. they're displaying some intellectual curiosity, and they're and they're doing this because there's this vacuum created by a mainstream media that has sort of gone down market. They don't pay very well anymore. They're you know they're mm-hmm. hiring reporters who many of them can't cover a, a house fire adequately, yeah. and so this vacuum I, I, has been filled. I kind of agree with you there. Yeah. There's, there's, it's a mistake to uh, push people away and pigeonhole them and say you're just a conspiracy theory. Because a lot of people who you know, are interested in these topics, they have very valid concerns. Like people who have concerns about the monetary system in Canada or the U.S. or wherever, there's lots of very real things to be worried about. You know, people who have concerns about what happened on 9-11, there's lots of very valid things to be worried about. And people who are concerned about chemtrails, there are things to be concerned about with ge- geoengineering and and even with contrails and plane exhausts. So I think you know it's part of the reason why I try to debunk in the sense of getting rid of the things that are incorrect, the claims that are incorrect, is so people can focus on these real issues. If people are making baseless claims about uh, whatever the interest rates or the, the, the financial system, the monetary system, it takes away from the actual issues that are actually going on. So if there is a conspiracy theory that is false in a, a topic, I think it's worthwhile getting rid of that conspiracy theory, but excising it in a way that it doesn't, uh, it doesn't like tar everything, everybody with the same brush. Right. Now, when it comes to 9-11, when you focus on controlled demolition, for me, the possibility that elements of 9-11 were an inside job doesn't live or die with controlled demolition. That's simply the means, and sometimes we focus on the means more than, you know, uh, as a friend of mine says, that's like counting the blades of grass on the grassy knoll. Uh, I would agree with you. They they may very well have flown planes into the the building, and that may have caused a structural weakness and a collapse. The question is, you know, how did they... How did they get? How, how did they manage to do that and mm-hmm. penetrate the most, you know, sophisticated defense system in the world? So then you start tugging on threads again. But to say, you know, that that it's it wasn't controlled demolition and it wasn't an inside job. I mean, I think there's lots of evidence to suggest that it was an inside job. It doesn't. Necessarily, well, I, I yeah. just say that it wasn't controlled demolition. Right. I don't. I right. don't normally go into the other theories because right. I, you know, I don't uh, really have enough information about them. I look at the controlled demolition stuff because it's stuff that I'm familiar with, the physics. I did a lot of uh, physics programming back in the games industry, so yes. I, I understand the math and the science behind that. Uh, so I think, you know, if it, say it was a control, say it was um, an inside job of some sort, so the CIA was some, in some way behind it, I think that what I'm doing was help reveal that because I am removing the distraction of controlled demolition because I don't think controlled demolition stands up to scrutiny. All these claims of evidence that architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth make, they don't stand up to scrutiny. And I think that if there was actually something going on, there was something nefarious in the Bush administration uh, behind that, that would need to be, uh, we need to figure that out. And we can't do that if everybody's spending all their time saying the buildings were blown up, because you're not going to get the real story if all you're focusing on is this 
nanothermite nonsense. Right. The, the interesting thing, or ironic maybe, I don't know, but the, the idea that if one believes in the official version that, you know, operatives within al-Qaeda, you know, that were orchestrated by Osama bin Laden, they were able to penetrate the, the defense uh, system, that is a conspiracy, right? The question is then, okay, who's who's committing conspiracies? Is it just those people over there? Yeah. Uh, and does that mean that we're not capable of, you know, our government is not capable of committing conspiracy? Do you know what I mean? It's it's ironic that they're so... Oh, yeah. Well, it, it's in all of these things that Everything is a conspiracy one way or the other. If you look at a lot of the things in politics now, like, uh, uh, I'd say Obama being a Kenyan. If, if he is a Kenyan, there's this huge conspiracy to cover that up. And if he's not a Kenyan, then there's a conspiracy to make it seem like he's a Kenyan. So someone is lying on one side or the other. You know, if there are weapons of mass destruction, uh, in Iraq, like, uh, there either there were or there weren't. If someone, if they were, then, People who said there weren't are lying. So, you know, there, there, there are always conspiracies. But the conspiracy theories we're talking about are generally the ones uh, where the suggestion is someone in, in power is doing it, some very powerful people that are uh, you know, in, in a smoky room somewhere. So I wouldn't say it's the same thing. Like Al-Qaeda plotting things isn't really a conspiracy theory. Uh, it's uh, an actual conspiracy. Well, um we're just about out of time, and I, I wanted to get around to the flat Earth. May, I'll have you back, and we'll do that. I'm not a flat earther. I mean, th- th- this is okay. that kind of bothers me. <laughs> but I will entertain people, you know, if they want to try to mm-hmm. convince me that the Earth mm-hmm. is flat. I want yeah, just me too. Me the too. one final point I want to make has to do with one of the main arguments is that conspiracies can't happen because it's too. It would be too hard to keep something a secret. And my counter to that has always been the Manhattan Project. You had mm-hmm. something like three hundred thousand scientists working on that, and even yeah. I, I mean, I've known pe- I know people who, who worked on the Manhattan Project. Their wives yeah. didn't even know. So I mean, yeah. it is people possible. Bring that up. It is possible to keep big secrets secret. It is, but the difference there is the Manhattan Project was uh, wasn't something that people could see. It wasn't something that people were investigating. If you compare it to 9-11, say, uh, you know, the Manhattan Project was like a town somewhere off in the mountains where people were sequestered and no one knew what was going on in this town. 9-11 was planes flying into buildings and buildings collapsing and thousands of people dying. And then the entire FBI uh, investigating that. That's a lot harder to cover up than uh, something in the desert that no one really knows anything about. Everyone saw 9-11. Yeah, all the, the law enforcement officers that were there, they were investigating it. They wanted to find out what happened. You know, tens of tens of thousands of people knew someone who died on 9-11. It's not like you know, it was a secret that it was covered up. Those people did actually die. We knew that they happened. Uh, and you know, half the FBI were investigating at the cost of billions of dollars for the next uh, you know, five to ten years. So it's a very different thing to a wartime secret that no one knew anything about to this huge event that killed thousands of people and involved tens of thousands of other people that was right there in the open, there on live TV. It's a completely different thing. And I understand you know, people saying, oh, a lot of people were involved, you know, therefore it's covered up. But if you look at what you're comparing, a, town, a secret town in the desert is not the same thing as the Twin Towers falling down. Well, it wasn't a, a little town in the desert. I mean, it was up in Chalk River. Uh, it, was, it, was, sure. it was spread all over, operate, I mean, the Manhattan Project. It wasn't just... A little town in the yeah. It was it was wartime though, so it was a lot easier to uh, keep tabs on things like that uh, and shut down the newspapers. Mick, I hope you'll join me again. I've enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, me too. I uh, I enjoyed it a lot.
Yes. I think it's great that we do actually get to talk uh, people who are on somewhat different sides of the fence. I think it's an important thing that we do actually try to get common ground, even if we don't agree on things. A hundred percent, especially in this day and age. We have to stop talking past each other and start talking to each other. Uh, and we will yeah. again. Thank you, Mick. Thank you. Escaping the rabbit hole. When we come back, Ronald Murphy. He's been fascinated with the paranormal since he was a child, and he'll be appearing at a paranormal convention down in Pennsylvania. There's a haunted location. We'll talk about that as well. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Stay with us.